Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Don Eden Goldstein. Dawn is an award-winning author and Jewish convert to Catholicism. She has a doctorate in sacred theology and is currently studying canon law at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I wanted to speak with her after watching, gosh, you know, a gutsy lecture she delivered to the Society of G.K. Chesterton this summer on Chesterton and my Jewish Catholic journey. If you don't know who G.K. Chesterton is, don't worry. Dawn is going to tell you all about him. But just to let you know, I mean, he was very influential. I mean, he was a prolific writer of the early 20th century and a great Catholic apologist. And many Catholic converts credit Chesterton for bringing them to the church. But he also wrote some highly insensitive, controversial things about the Jewish people. And this is something we as Catholics really have to grapple with. I mean, what happens when we discover that one of our heroes, maybe even one of our saints, was a sinner, was wrong, or held positions that can't be reconciled with the gospel? I mean, especially today, as so many of us are being awakened to our own subtle prejudices about race, colonialism, power. I mean, we need to be really honest. We need to have that introspective gaze about that. And what does that mean? That means recognizing that our heroes and saints were not perfect. And we need to think through that and think through what that means for the way we talk about them, the way we talk about the lives they had on earth. And what we would say when we do ask them for intercessory prayer, what of their lives are we holding up as examples to imitate? And this is hard and painful because these are people that we love, right? And we expected more from them. And we're seeing that they have these blind spots or these parts that they held on to that were really contrary to the other good parts that they've shared with us. And so I'm going to talk about that with Don Eden Goldstein, and it's coming right up. As you may know, my podcast is a production of America Media, and we decided to collaborate because America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today. And that means you'll find different opinions and perspectives here on the podcast and in the articles published on America's website. And if that's meaningful to you, as it is to me, then I encourage you to get a digital subscription to America. You'll get access to all of our content, all of those conversations and opinions that are informed and nuanced. So go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Don Eden Goldstein is up next. Don, I'm so happy to be able to talk with you. I remember the first time we met and I remember we went out to, actually, it was a restaurant that served Southern Soul Food, Georgia Browns in D.C., right. me, you, and my husband, and we had a blast. And it was it was just, you know, you were living way out away from D.C., but boy, we, we were having a good time there. But I have to say, one of the things that really warmed my heart is this picture. I can't remember where I saw it of you in the cap and gown and you're with all these men. And I think you were at Mundelein Seminary. That's and right. I was like, look at her go. I was like, go girl. 
Uh, yes. That's right. That's me with my Beretta. You yes. know, there's yes. a hat known as a doctoral Beretta that yeah. you can wear if you have what's called a canonical doctorate. Yes. In my case, a doctorate in sacred theology licensed by the Holy See. So uh -huh. before my graduation from Mundelein, I went with some schoolmates to the House of Hansen, which is the place where priests go for their vestments in uh -huh. Chicago <laughs> to get my custom-made Beretta. And then I had the joy of wearing it, you know, surrounded by priests because I was the first laywoman ever to receive a doctorate in sacred theology from Mundelein. Uh, and then I had that little indignity of people on social media pointing <laughs> out that I was, you know, wearing it backwards or something what? like that. <laughs> Tom, you meant to do that. Say, look, I have my degree. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Haters go, hate, y'all go ahead. This is my style. Girl, I was so tickled. I was so happy when I saw that. And I just thought, you know, this is something we should be celebrating, um, women's gifts to the church, and that we can be in these places and helping and being who we are and using our gifts, our talents, our brains in ways to help the sheep grow in holiness. I know sometimes Amen. people only think of that as being something that priests do. I'm like, if you don't understand the role of women in this, I said, y'all are missing out. <laughs> you know, so I was Amen. so, I was like, go girl, look at Dawn. Amen. And you, know, and you know, people think that it's only Vatican II and John Paul II and so on who speak about the role of women, but actually much of what Vatican II and John Paul II teach about the role of women in the church is from some addresses that Pius XII gave late in uh -huh. his pontificate. So for any trads who are reading this and who are thinking, oh, those are just a couple of radical <laughs> feminists out to change the church, you know, read some of the things Pius XII said to women. They're uh, pretty eye-opening. You know, and I, I consider if they want to call me a radical feminist, meaning radix at the root based yes. on what God meant for women to be, I'll take it. That's Amen. exactly right. But my friend, I brought you here today because you recently were invited by the Society of G.K. Chesterton to give a lecture on Chesterton and my Jewish Catholic journey. And G.K. Chesterton was a giant in the English Catholic tradition in the first, what, third of the 20th century. He played a significant role in your conversion, if I'm not misunderstanding this, to Catholicism. And I, I'm imagining probably many other people, and in many other people's conversions, Chesterton played a role too. But some of his writings on Jews were and are extremely controversial and prejudicial. And, you know, maybe because you probably are much more intimately familiar with Chesterton since he played a role in your conversion, you could help some of our listeners understand who was G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was a British writer who was born in the late 19th century and died in 1936. Mm -hmm. uh, so he died, you know, just before the Second World War. He was born into a nominally Anglican family, but he, as a young man, had an experience, basically it's a sense of encountering Christ that led him to be very strong in his Anglican faith. And over mm. time, he was drawn to the Catholic faith, and he was sort of on the fence, wanting to become Catholic for some time before he finally entered the church. And during this time, he wrote a number of books, novels and nonfiction, uh, novels like The Man Who Was Thursday, nonfiction such as Orthodoxy, mm. that started a new revival in 
Christian literature in England. There's a saying of his, which I love. It's from his novel, Man Alive. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, break the conventions, keep the commandments. Ah, Uh, So, you know, for those who are looking for ways to be creative and artistic and dynamic as Christians and as Catholics, those people find a real friend in Chesterton. He was known as Mm. the Prince of Paradox. He had a great gift for a wit. He was a contrarian. He was (laughs) very much opposed to what nearly a hundred years later, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, would call the dictatorship of relativism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So he recognized that there were certain currents in contemporary philosophy that would reduce the notions of good or evil to mere subjective opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he was very much countering those currents, and yet countering those currents in a way that was very clear. He had a a sense of truth that was compelling. And even though his style was at times triumphalistic, at his best, he was articulating a philosophy that required a serious response from those who disagreed with him. Another thing he was known for was having very few enemies. He engaged in a number of public debates, but he was known for being very gracious. One of his top sparring partners was George Bernard Shaw, and Bernard Shaw disagreed with him on a great deal philosophically, but loved debating him, just enjoyed him on a personal level. Let me ask you this. I mean, to me, that sounds like probably a lot of why people find him attractive and it sounds like his wit and the way he could turn a phrase could make people chuckle even as they're reading him. You know, yes. you don't necessarily have to have him speak to still have some kind of emotional reaction that's pleasing. You know what I mean? Yes. And also it sounds like he really makes you think. Was that what attracted you to him? Because there are GK Chesterton societies all over the world. And so there's still things that people find attractive about him today and his writings. And I'm assuming what you just said is why they find him attractive and and whatnot. Were those all the things for you that helped in your conversion, help you appreciate Chesterton? Yes. Well, I think that anyone who's made to suffer for the sake of truth finds a friend in Chesterton, Mm. even though nowadays the most public fans of his tend to be people who are politically conservative. Chesterton has traditionally had a number of fans on the liberal progressive side of the spectrum as well because of his ability to poke holes in certain philosophies that were really not based on truth and were philosophies of oppression. Mm. So for me personally, one of the things that I found most attractive about him when I was introduced to him, and I was introduced to him at a time when I was an agnostic, when I was in my late 20s, I was a rock and roll journalist, and I was doing a telephone interview with a member of a power pop band from Los Angeles. And I (laughs) asked him what he was reading these days. And he said he was reading a novel, The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. And I went out afterwards to 
by the man who was Thursday from my local Barnes and Noble. This <laughs> dates the story because it's from back in an age when you could walk to your corner bookstore and, and actually something. find the very book that you were looking for. <laughs> right. And what really moved me about the man who was Thursday was that at the end, Chesterton has this character who stands for Jesus or represents Jesus, say to someone who asks him, you know, have you suffered? This mm. character says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? Mm. Which when I read that, I knew that that was a gospel verse, but I had never really contemplated that verse from the gospel in terms of the possibility that God could have an interior knowledge of suffering through Jesus Christ. Mm. All my life, I had seen images of the crucifixion. I had seen crucifixes, but I had never thought of God himself somehow knowing suffering from the inside uh, mm. through Jesus. So that book really led me into my uh, Christian journey. And like Chesterton, I became an active Protestant before I was Catholic. I, I now joke with priest friends and seminarian friends that just as they, on their way to the priesthood, become a transitional deacon. Yeah. I was a transitional, transitional. Protestant yeah, right, for, right, right. for five years. And then I entered into full communion with the Catholic Church in 2006. And even before I was Catholic, I was publicly giving interviews where I was crediting Chesterton with jumpstarting my Christian journey. And so the talk that you mentioned that I gave to the Chesterton Society was an important talk for me to give because it represented some recent reflection that I've done on Chesterton that's where I've really been forced to reevaluate his writings and his role in my own journey. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I hope it establishes for our listeners how deeply important Chesterton is to you. Yes. But they may not know what Chesterton wrote about the Jews. And I also think this is interesting because you are of Jewish heritage and had a love for Chesterton and then finding these writings of his. So what did Chesterton write about the Jews? So until that point, I had read a book by an author named Anne Farmer. I think it's called G.K. Chesterton and the Jews, but it's okay. a book that's promoted by the Society of G.K. Chesterton as the definitive book on Chesterton and the Jews. But okay. it's written very much from a perspective of trying to excuse Chesterton. And I remember when I read it that I felt dissatisfied. Okay. So instead, I picked up a book called Chesterton's Jews by Simon Mayers, which is a popular rendition of part of Simon Mayers' doctoral dissertation. He's a British scholar. It was first published in 2013, so that's long after I had first looked at Chesterton. And interestingly, even though this book was published before Anne Farmer's book, Anne Farmer really doesn't address it at all in her book. She mentions it in a couple of footnotes and has it in her bibliography as though she read it. But then she repeats in her book a number of myths that are demolished in Simon Mayer's Chesterton's Jews. Well, now you have me and all the listeners going, girl, what did he say? What did he write? So first, Mayer's goes through different stereotypes and caricatures of Jews, what are known as anti-Semitic tropes. Now, the term anti-Semitism is a misnomer. 
a Semite is someone from the region of the Holy Land. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a Semite could be someone not necessarily even from the state of Israel, but from Lebanon or right. other countries in that area. A Semite could be someone who is Christian or Muslim or, you know, another religion, strictly speaking. But the term anti-Semitic has come to really mean anti-Jewish. And so I use it just as a sort of shorthand for anti-Jewish. I guess it's really more of a longhand, but, you know, just because it's the word conventionally used. Mm -hmm. So these stereotypes that uh, Simon Mayers goes through are stereotypes such as the greedy Jew, the Jewish Bolshevik, the Jewish coward and the unpatriotic Jew, the secretive Jew, the Jewish traitor, the ugly Jew. And these are all tropes that have been used by anti-Jewish writers from you know, medieval times or earlier that are all present in Chesterton's writings. Right. And mm-hmm. Chesterton doesn't seem conscious that he's employing these tropes, but he does and often employs several of these tropes in one you know, passage. Right. And a lot of these tropes are even contrary to one another. Like for Chesterton, he would accuse Jews of being communists and then would accuse them of being capitalists. And then he would even try to explain that, well, if they're not one extreme, they're the other and that sort of thing. And it was like he was just choosing, you know, any trope to employ against. Now, let me explain, because I could hear some people saying, well, I mean, what's so bad about that? And the problem with these kinds of tropes is that they tend to, in the mind of the reader or the listener, if someone's speaking them and speaking them casually as if they were true, in the mind of the person who's trusting the speaker or the reader, it sets in there this idea about the Jewish person that dehumanizes them and separates them from what is normal, beautiful, good, and true. That's right. And that's what these tropes do. And that's the harm with them. That's why this is not some uptight overreaction. This is us really talking about people speaking on or writing in a way that is contrary to the truth of who the human person is, and in particular, in this case, who Jews are. And um, that's why I hear this stuff and I am aggrieved. I, you know, I just grieve. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm a little bit angry. Dawn, I'm a little bit angry when I hear that. We should be angry when we hear about people employing these tropes because it is dehumanizing. It is wrong. These tropes serve as excuses to scapegoat an entire people, an entire religion, an entire culture. Mm -hmm. And they also serve as excuses for people not to think. And in my address to the Society of G.K. Chesterton, I contrasted Chesterton's mind in using these tropes with the things, many things about Chesterton that I learned that educated me morally that were very good, positive moral imperatives. And one of the moral imperatives that I picked up from Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy, is where Chesterton says, there is a thought that stops thought that is the only thought that ought to be stopped. Mm. Meaning, I mean, it sounds, you know, first like a kind of, you know, paradox. It's kind of like saying the only thing to fear is fear itself. (laughs) But it is true that the only 
thought that we should not have is the idea that we should stop thinking. Right. That's the wrong thought to have. And the real sin of these stereotypes is that they are intended to stop thought. Uh. They're intended to stop people from looking at every Jewish person as a unique human being. And they're instead intended to create these frames where if people, you know, see a Jew acting in such and such a way, even a hint of that, then they're supposed to put that Jewish person in the frame of, oh, well, this person just said something that sounds liberal, therefore this person must be a communist, or right. and so on. You know, this person was asked a question that this person didn't want to answer, therefore this person must be secretive. All those bad things. Yes. So maybe give one other example beyond the tropes. And then I want to move this into ask another, a broader question, I think. Sure. Well, this is one of the earlier examples in Chesterton. And I definitely want to talk more about some of the things that he said later, especially yeah. during the time when he's supposed to or purported to have been countering uh, Hitler. Right. But early on, the kinds of tropes that Chesterton would use concerned what he called the Jewish problem. So in his book, What I Saw in America, he goes to great length defending Henry Ford and Henry Ford's discussion of the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. Okay. So Henry Ford was this terrible anti-Semite yeah. who had a newspaper that he purchased called, I believe, the Dearborn uh, Independent. And Ford put these newspapers in every Ford dealership and in every Ford car that was sold. And just to imagine the kind of influence that Ford yeah. had in the 1920s, you know, yeah. imagine if Jeff Bezos were... Putting this in every Amazon package. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I mean, right. So what was Ford saying? What, what message was Ford getting out there? So Ford was arguing that the Jews were at the root of basically every evil in the world. And he was saying crazy things such as mm -hmm. that, that, you know, we have the Jews to blame for the World Series being thrown, and we have the Jews to blame for jazz music that's corrupting the world, and we have <laughs> Jewish banking uh, to blame for blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh and my so gosh. I shouldn't laugh, but it's so absurd. I'm it sorry. isn't. It is absurd. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be laughable if it, if it wasn't for that. It, it, yeah. it, it had real world effects and it yes. and it and it certainly was something that Hitler pointed to as justification for his terrible crimes against Jews um, and so Chesterton in his book what I saw in America which is was published in 1921 engaged in a very lengthy defense of Ford in which he claimed that if a person has a prejudice that's based upon encounters with people of that racial or ethnic group, then it's not a prejudice. It's just true. All right. Okay. I'm sorry, Don, but you know what that sounds like? It sounds like a lot of, actually, when I read, when people try to say, well, it's not irrational because, and then they misquote statistics on crime right? to try to say certain things about Black people as if crime is inherent to our being. You know what I mean? And well, look, we've got all these numbers or look, I had this experience of such and so. Or, look, you know, it fails to really deal with the entire world. And if you meet yes. a lot of people, they're all going to have certain behaviors, you know, yes. and you wouldn't come to that conclusion about 
let's say everybody in his family was a certain way. Did he, would he come to the conclusion that his entire family was that way? No, you wouldn't. You would understand that people are broken and all this kind of stuff. But to then put that in writing, knowing that he was influential and to basically confirm people in their animus toward different groups, quite a dangerous thing, quite contrary to the faith. It is contrary to the faith. It is dangerous. And one thing that really struck me in reading this passage from Chesterton is that at the end of it, he says, and that is the Henry Ford story, and you're not going to read anything about it in the British press. Now, I can't claim to know exactly what Chesterton meant by writing that. I need more context as to what the British press were saying. But Mm -hmm. from what it sounds like, it sounds like Chesterton is saying that the British press are up in arms about Ford's anti-Semitism. And I'm telling you, Chesterton is saying, that it's excusable because Henry Ford has real experience of Jews and therefore it's not a prejudice. So for many years, I was aware that Chesterton wrote quite a number of insensitive things about Jews. I occasionally came across them in his writings. And I was friends with people from the American Chesterton Society, or as it's now called, the Society of G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them about these things that Chesterton wrote, and they would give me certain explanations, which are the accepted explanations among Chesterton fans. And so these people would tell me that Chesterton was a man of his time, that at the time that Chesterton was writing, these insensitive attitudes that he was expressing were simply what everyone else in England was thinking or expressing. Right. And they also told me that Chesterton, towards the end of his life in 1933, gave an interview where he said that it was very possible that he and Hilaire Belloc, his friend, who Mm -hmm. was known for being extremely anti-Semitic, he said it was very possible that he and Belloc were going to die defending the last Jew in Europe. So in this 1933 interview, it was for a British newspaper called the Jewish Chronicle, Chesterton very clearly denounced Hitler and denounced, you know, Hitler's scapegoating Jews Mm -hmm. and expressed his desire to die defending Jews. So people would point to that and they would say, whatever Chesterton believed, by the time he saw Hitler on the horizon and knew about Hitler, Chesterton stopped using his rhetoric to make offensive generalizations about Jews. Well, you know, when people use it, because I've I've heard that that was just the time, you know, when they talk about for example, we we're going through this right when we talk about slavery and we look at our founding fathers and we look at and people say, oh, he's just a man of the time. I'm like, did anybody actually talk to the enslaved? What do you think their points of view were? I can assure you their points of view were not lined up with the people that were justifying enslaving, raping, beating, separating their families. I'm sure they had a different perspective here. And so every time people say, you know, it's just a person of the time, I'm like, well, what about the groups that are being denigrated? What do they have to say about this? And then as a Catholic, I keep saying, but how can the light of the gospel help us not be those persons that are stuck in the time. Well, that's actually what Chesterton says. (laughs) Chesterton says in It Might Be Everlasting Man, and in one of his books, one of his more famous quotes is that Christianity saves us from being people of our time. Certainly in Orthodoxy, he has that wonderful saying where he says, 
a dead dog can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Mm. Chesterton is the one who teaches us to go against Mm. the flow. So it's hypocritical to Mm. say, oh, he was just going with the flow, especially when there were people of his time, such as J.R.R. Tolkien and Christopher Dawson and Mm. a, a number of others who before, you know, many of Hitler's atrocities were known, were already, you know, seeing these signs and were strongly defending Jews in ways that Chesterton wasn't. We'll be back in a minute. I know there are listeners taking this in, and the question I think we're really getting at here is how do you respond when, you know, our heroes or people we think are saintly, you know, these things are revealed about them? And I quite like the idea of reparations when we discover these things. Isn't that the loving response? Is that we see this person's brokenness, their sinfulness. And by the way, the the damage was done publicly because these were his public writings that were shared and all these people were influenced by it. It would make sense then to do public acts of reparation for what the damage that was done. Now we have to remember always sin is chiefly an offense against God. So we have to remember this reparation is, you know, to God, we make a reparation of a sin, but it also means something about our neighbor, our community, that we want to repair the created order for the damage that was done spiritually, as well as in the physical world as well, because we know people motivated by these sentiments later went on to do and still do horrible things to Jewish people, right? Yes. But why is it that when people hear, like, we want to make reparations, particularly spiritual reparations, and we name particular sins, there's a sort of um, knee-jerk reaction to defend the person and not want to maybe even make those reparations? Well, that's a very good question, Gloria. And in answering it, I want to first emphasize the centrality of penance to Catholic faith. And Mm. this is something that I got from reading Chesterton in his book called The Thing, about his becoming Catholic, why he became Catholic, he says that the simplest answer is to get rid of my sins. Mm. So it's actually from Chesterton that I learned that this is why we are drawn to Christian faith, because we know interiorly that there's something broken in us and we want that to be healed. And Mm. the way that we find this healing is through admitting our sins. I've been recently studying Alcoholics Anonymous because Mm -hmm. I'm writing a biography of Father Edward Dowling, who was a Jesuit, who was a spiritual advisor to Bill Wilson. And the way that AA works is that, you know, even though the members of AA may be people who have every reason to drink because maybe they've suffered all different kinds of abuse and hardship, In order to stop drinking, they first have to go through an examination of conscience where they admit to God and to another person the nature of their faults, their wrongs. And only then can they be open to all the grace of healing that God wants to give them. So in answer to your question, you know, why is it so hard? I think that as soon as a good work begins, Mm -hmm. the devil tries to get in its way. So Mm -hmm. the devil tries to turn Christianity into just another ism, just another identity. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Chestertonian. I'm this. I'm that. And so the devil wants us to think of of 
our belief, our faith in such a superficial way, whereas the God's eye perspective is that the life of the Christian is one of constant conversion, yes. constant introspection, not on the level of navel-gazing, but on the level of asking, am I imitating Christ? And mm. if I'm not imitating Christ in such and such a way, then what do I need to change in order right. to better imitate mm. him? Let's think about maybe a common perception of saints, right? They, once they saw the light, they never struggled, they never sinned, you know, and they went straight to heaven, <laughs> you know? And I kind of like, ah, I think quite a few people still had to stop off in purgatory, even the <laughs> declared saints, even our declared saints of the church. But that seems to be so counter to people's popular telling of the lives of saints. So I can see when somebody we love and hold up and we have to grapple with now something that we found out, it becomes difficult to reconciling that with our popular perception of what it means to be a saint or how to get to heaven. What are your thoughts on that? Well, certainly, Gloria, I agree that being a saint does not mean that a person has spent no time in purgatory. St. Augustine, who's considered one of the greatest, holiest saints, he spent his last days, his last hours crying and you know, reading the Psalms. And, you know, he certainly would not have refused purgatory if that mm. was required. We don't know if it was or not, but what we do know is that since he's a saint, we know that he is now in heaven. That's all that sainthood shows that the person is now in heaven. It doesn't right. show that they've never been in purgatory. And in fact, interestingly enough, you know, this is something that we've lost in our tradition, but there was for many years a tradition where somebody who wanted to become more perfect would make what was known as the heroic act of charity. Mm -hmm. You can look this up in the old Catholic encyclopedia. The heroic act of charity is an act of promising God all your merits so that if somebody else might benefit by your spending time in purgatory, you right. will spend time. as much time as is necessary in order that others can benefit. And that is no small thing when you understand what purgatory is. Yes, yes. I keep thinking of the heart heavily full of God's grace to make that heroic act, knowing the suffering that you're going to undertake. Woo, we buddy. Yes. I mean, yes, <laughs> yes. purgatory is an easy word to say, not such an easy thing to experience, I would imagine. Yes, yes. And I imagine that we have dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of canonized saints who made this heroic act of charity. And so Indeed. who are we to say that spending time in purgatory doesn't make someone a, a saint? But the thing is that, you know, there's been over the past several years, a push among members of the Society of G.K. Chesterton to have Chesterton canonized and concurrent with that push has been an effort to downplay accusations of anti-Semitism. And my argument, which I said in my talk to the Society of G.K. Chesterton, was that far from helping Chesterton's would-be cause for sainthood. In fact, the downplaying of Chesterton's anti-Semitism hurts his cause because what it implies is that to support Chesterton is to be in denial about mm. anti-Semitism. And right. when the Catholic Church is looking at candidates for sainthood, 
they look at what is that person's legacy? Is that mm. person's legacy self-examination and a desire to stop sinning and to convert, to repent and, and believe in the gospel? Or right. is that person's legacy a legacy of covering up sin? Well, I was thinking the power of reparations actually could help Chesterton's cause. Sure. I was actually thinking that reparations, that if he were in purgatory, might be the thing to set him free. Yes, absolutely. Right? And so I, as we come to think about how do we deal with when we hear these things about our heroes, maybe an answer is doing reparations for their faults that have been uncovered to us. And I think of St. Teresa of Avila actually saying to her sisters, when you see the vice of another sister, practice the virtue for their benefit, or something along Beautiful. those lines. And so how could this not also come to be for those of us, you know, who are believers, who are in this community of believers, that if we were to see the vice or the sinfulness or the brokenness of someone else in our community, that we would practice the opposite virtue, that, that we, we would pray for them, we would fast for them, we would do penance for them, we do make reparations for them as an act of love, Right. So I keep thinking of that here being the motivating factor, whoever the person is, whether it's Chesterton or, you know, I'm a, I'm sure some people, John Paul II is a saint. And, you know, as we've been grappling with abuse things here in the United States, some people have been unhappy with what they felt like during his pontificate that they didn't feel like he took the right steps, right, mm-hmm. uh, with, in regard to this issue. Never that he was trying to promote it or enable it. Let me get that straight. But they didn't think that he took the wisest or correct steps here. But does that mean, though, then that we can't, now that he's a canonized saint, that we can't ask his intercessory prayer? No, it doesn't mean that. If we if we really believe something is still wrong, it doesn't mean we can't say, well, Lord, you know, well, Lord, help me here. When I was asked uh, about this, when I learned more about John Paul's failures to act on allegations of abuse in the case of McCarrick yeah. and with Maciel and others, yeah. then my prayer to God through John Paul is, dear John Paul II, you broke it, you fix it. I remember that. <laughs> and you know what? I'm like, you you looking in the face of God, you're right up there. You're, you know, you're a saint in heaven. You could certainly go and say, Lord, you know, can you put in a word for us, please, John Paul? Thank you very much. And isn't that something to think about, right? I also think we also tend to expect saints when they were on earth to somehow have this wisdom in all subjects. <laughs> and that's just not true, right? That he's supposed to be wise enough to know and recognize this. And that's just not true because he's human like the rest of us. He doesn't have all this knowledge. He's not a specialist in certain things. He could have been duped like some of us can, but it doesn't mean that we can't ask for his intercessory prayer and helping us remedy this situation. And I, and I quite like that approach. Oh, I, I do too, very, very much. And just going back to something you said earlier with regard to, you were mentioning Teresa of Avila and the idea of praying for uh, the person who's sinning, mm-hmm. that uh, St. Paul mentions this with regard to wives and, and husbands. I, I think it's in First Corinthians, you can correct me on the chapter and verse, but he speaks about how an, a believing wife can sanctify an unbelieving husband. Now, in the body of Christ, we are all one body just as husband and wife are one body, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. Mm-hmm. So likewise, in the body of Christ, we can make 
reparation for one another. It's always better if I'm the sinner, if I make reparation for myself. But if for some reason I'm not doing that, then it will certainly help if someone else makes reparation on my behalf. And that can also, God can use that to give me the grace of conversion. Mm, That's beautiful. And, you know, let's say, for example, in Chesterton's, that area being a blind spot for him the rest of his life. But those of us who see it now can make reparations for that. And it's kind of like an example I can think of is how we have to re-examine history in light of racism and our awakening to what systemic racism is today and how all these individual choices people made to do evil acts based on racist ideology that's completely contrary to the gospel, completely contrary to Imago Dei, how given our understanding of sin and how the effects of sin can outlive the person that's committed the sin, how we're grappling now with really centuries of free choices of individuals to sin so that they built these structures of sin right? And it's also, I think, a bit how we talk about, like, even our founding fathers saying all these wonderful things and then examining some of their lives, and we're like, uh-oh, right? But it's this case of having to grapple with the ugly truth of history and how to approach it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think with respect to what you said about the founding fathers, that it's similar to what I've been describing with Chesterton, We have to decide what is this person's legacy going to be? Is the person's legacy going to be the good things they did or the bad things they did? And as we decide this, we don't cover up the bad things. We don't pretend they never happened. But we say that we, as the ones who are living now and have free choice, are going to choose to perpetuate only those things that the founding fathers or that someone like Chesterton did that were good. We are not going to imitate or perpetuate those things that they said or or did that were bad. So what I'm hearing you say is you're not saying, hey, cancel Chesterton. No, not at all. You're saying we need to be honest, even if it hurts, even if it's a hero, even if it's somebody we adore. We need to be honest about their sin and shortfalls. Absolutely. But I also hear you saying that, Dawn. But when you discover them, what is our Christian responsibility? What is our duty? And I'm thinking you're saying, take the St. Teresa of Avila response. We can make reparations. We can do practice the opposite of what this person did. And I hope that's a hopeful thing for people. I hope that's, we're going to be exhausted by all of this. Trust me. (laughs) But I think it's a hopeful response, really. Yes. Well, I think what we should first do is to say, yes, Chesterton did write and say these things. After he gave his interview in 1933, where he was condemning Hitler, he turned around and wrote in one of his very last newspaper articles that there are healthy elements of Hitlerism, as he put it. And he said, and one of the healthy elements of Hitlerism is Hitler himself. He said that in, I believe it was late 1936, I think, so just like three months before he died. So we have to acknowledge that he said these things and then to say, we renounce those statements of Chesterton. We know they exist and we are not covering them up. We renounce them and we are going to show the world Chesterton at his best and Chesterton at his best would have us 
do penance for sin. Since he's no longer with the living to do penance, we are going to do penance on his behalf and we'll do penance for our role in failing to seek out the truth about him. So the great fans of Chesterton around the world aired, I would say, and I was among them, by the way, I was one of the people doing this. Mm -hmm. We aired in idolizing Chesterton's sainthood cause to the point where we couldn't engage in a true evaluation of in what ways was Chesterton imitating Christ and in what ways was he not. When you have that kind of idolization, it turns being a Chesterton fan and like being an Elvis fan where you're saying, Elvis didn't make any bad movies. Elvis didn't make any bad records. Oh no, everything Elvis did was great. At a certain point, we need to say what was great in Chesterton was Chesterton's ability to distill and spread the truths of Christian faith. What was great in Chesterton was his ability to live those truths. And when he did that, he was worthy of emulation. When he failed, and we all fail at some point, when Mm -hmm. he failed, he was not worthy of emulation. So I, I think in every case, when we find things that our heroes did that we now realize were harmful, that we don't cut out that hero from our life because that would be denying us our own past. We rather Mm. acknowledge what was done that was wrong, and then we seek to move forward based on the goodness that we received from that person. Amen. Well said. Thank you, Don. It was so good to catch up with you. Glad to really talk about this, talk about how we respond. What is a Catholic response when we find out someone's brokenness and sinfulness, and that there is a Catholic response, and one that I think heals the community. It does real healing, real helping of uh, the community in the spiritual sense and the physical sense. We make amends for their sins, and we can do this lovingly and freely. So thank you so much, Don Eden Goldstein, for joining me. It's always good to talk to you and keep on with your bad self. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do with your show, Gloria. It's really important. And I've just been blessed by it. And I know I'll continue to be blessed by it. Thank you. Oh, glory to God. Thank you. Thank you, Don. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and joining with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share an episode with a friend or family member. Help me get the good word out there about the podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And please leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.